Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Alemchi Wonsu. Um, I'm excited to be moderating the session this afternoon. Over the next 45 minutes, we will be exploring a key topic. What does just transition mean for Africa? The International Labour Organization defines just transition as greening the economy in a way that is fair and inclusive for everyone concerned, creating decent work opportunities and leaving no one behind. This panel now aims to explore this concept of a just transition in an African context and discuss strategies for achieving a low carbon, sustainable economy. We will have three panelists joining us on stage. We'll have a 30 minute discussion followed by 15 minutes of questions. I ask that you please uh, start preparing your questions as the session unfolds and please keep them concise. Thank you. being with us. Um, so I would first like to introduce NJ Ayuk, Executive Chairman of the African Energy Chamber. Welcome. Followed by Rolake Akinkube Filani, Chief Commercial Officer at Mixta Africa, ARM Group. Welcome. Thank you. And Ruka Sanusi, Executive Director at the Ghana Climate Innovation Center. Welcome. All of you, thank you for being with us here today. I am going to start by asking each panelist to give a brief opening statement, summarizing their perspective on the topic. Um, and to kick off, why don't we start with um, you, MJ? <laughs> what does a just transition mean in the African context? Amchi, thank you so much for having me. And uh, it's such a beauty to be at Oxford for my first time. And actually to be sitting here with Rolake, who has been not only a mentor, but somebody I've really had to. <laughs> I'm older than habit. <laughs> <laughs> but I've had a chance to really learn so much. Every time I call her, she is there. Every time I ask her for something, I call her at midnight, she picks up, she says yes. So it was, it's an honor. And when, so we talk about just energy transition. It's very beautiful that we're having a discussion with three women who are well accomplished and a gentleman who doesn't know what he's doing here. <laughs> so it it, this is real just energy transition for, for Africa. But when we talk about a just energy transition, you have to ask yourself the first thing. Transitioning from what and to where? 600 million people that access to electricity, 
900 million without access to clean cooking technologies. You can't discuss climate change without really looking at energy poverty. They represent two sides of the same coin. To look at a continent with these, with young people, jobs, moving away from coal. I just came yesterday from South Africa. It's a country that's going on with eight to 10 hours of blackouts a day, and that's a very serious thing for South Africa. But most around Africa, some don't even have lights. In the past, if you go to a country like Ghana, they had something called Dumsaw Dumsaw. In lots of places around Nigeria, across the continent, it's really bad. We cannot, and I'm going to be a little bit very direct here, we cannot adopt a very Western approach to an energy transition. That's why you need a just energy transition. That's why you have to look at what is going on around the world and saying, this is a chance for Africa to really be able to redefine itself. Climate change and energy poverty are two sides of the same coin. You have to deal with them both. After the Russia-Ukraine crisis started, and after COP26, we had all these pledges for decarbonization. Of course, we need a just energy transition. Western and wealthy countries need to decarbonize, and they need to decarbonize fast. African nations need to industrialize, but you have to use your gas, your oil, and sometimes coal to really power up your places and taking it. And don't take my word for that. South Africa is shipping more coal to Germany than it has ever. The UK, for the first time in 30 years, is opening up coal power plants. Norway, after COP, gave 50 licenses to a lot of oil producers. And Germany is building LNG terminals. US opened every, all federal lands for drilling. And then you turn around and you tell Mozambique, Namibia, Angola, or African countries, and you say, leave it in the ground. That is not a just energy transition. And I know you might not like me saying it or how I say it, but in your guts, you know I'm right. And you can buy my book. It just came out two days ago. And I'm, I know you. I know you guys are students. It's just twenty nine ninety nine. I got it for you, and I sell it. Thank you, NJ. Hold hold the ammunition. We'll dive into this uh, much deeper in a second. Um, Rolaka, moving on to you. Yeah. If you could just summarize very briefly in uh, a one minute, what is just transition for us? Yeah, I love the way you, you emphasize very briefly after NJ. <laughs> but I must actually recommend that book. I've read it. And it's always an honor to sit on a panel like this with NJ. We've known each other for many years. And I always say that he sits on a really extreme spectrum <laughs> of similar views that we share. But I, but I guess my first really is to think about what it means to, what is just for Africa? Um, you know, I recently heard someone say, Africa hasn't even started carbonizing, never mind decarbonizing. And I think it really speaks to the whole quest for industrialization. Um, this year, we've all been celebrating International Women's Day and, and the theme hashtag is Embrace Equity. And I have to think of a just transition in light of what is an equitable use for Africa? So equality means that we're all pursuing decarbonization, lowering carbon emissions, but equity for me is Africa has to pursue what fits for Africa, and that is equitable. 
So it's really about thinking about how we use what we have to get what we want. And, and because I have a finance background, I like to come from it from the perspective of financial resources. So equity, insofar as the energy transition is concerned, is, number one, the global north keeping to its promises around supporting uh, the continent's climate mitigation and adaptation strategies through the much-promised and elusive $100 billion investments. But it's also about African governments properly stewarding Africa's financial resources and harnessing domestic and local capital markets to drive that energy transition. The third thing is that it's also about the sustainable extraction of our mineral resources and then using the windfall from that extraction to invest in more sustainable forms of energy. And the final thing I will say really is to get to net zero, we're actually in some ways going to be deepening the rate and the pace of mineral extraction. You only need to look at what is happening in lithium mines, in cobalt and copper mines. More than ever, those minerals are going to need to be extracted and developed to support renewable energy, wind turbines, and component parts for more sustainable forms of energy. So in some ways, we all have blind spots around the energy transition. And the final thing I will say is that more than ever, the continent needs to be speaking with one voice. I really like what Yvonne said around regionalization as a tool from not, for not just taking our seat on the table, but ensuring that we have an integrated and harmonized approach to negotiating at the global table insofar as the energy transition is concerned. Thank you. Wonderful. And Ruka, finally, your take. Yes, thank you very much. Um, when I think about um, what, what a just transition is and what it entails, I speak from the point of view of the constituents that I serve, and that is the, the, the business sector, particularly the small and growing business sector. And I also speak from the point of view of women, because I'm also a, a women's advocate, particularly women in, in, in business. Now, at the um, Climate Innovation Center, um, we recognize that the business sector um, globally has contributed um, to global warming, right? And in redressing some of the negative externalities of, of, of climate change, we have to have um, the business um, sector um, take action. But when you come to Africa, the vast majority of, um, if you look at Africa's Ghana's G GDP, for instance, 70% of that is made up of business from the small and growing business sector. So if you want to transition to low carbon pathways, you cannot ignore the SME sector. Now, when I say SMEs, I'm sure some of you are thinking about, you know, small, you know, maybe kiosk businesses or whatever. That exists, but there is also the professional business sector, people who are... Um, the professional small and growing business sector. Men and women who are you know, doing very well, have very strong P&Ls, but they're still growing um, businesses. Now, if you want those um, businesses to transition to low carbon pathways, you, know, um, you have to give them incentives. Because when we talk about deals around the energy transition, around you know, anything to do with um, you know, climate change adaptation, it's normally big <coughs> business, but we cannot exclude um, the, the, this, this um, class of people that make up 70% of Ghana's economy. But also with, with, with women, 
Um, there are opportunities. Um, there are challenges to climate change, but there are opportunities. And the genderized nature of, of entrepreneurship means that if we're not careful, we're going to further exclude women from taking, you know, from accessing the opportunities that exist um, within climate change adaptation and um, mitigation. So a just transitions to me means an inclusive economy, right? An economy that includes small and growing businesses and, in, and, in, and, a, and also an economy that also supports the growth and the scaling of women-owned businesses in the green economy. Wonderful, Ruka, and there's so much to unpack there and, and we will do so um, during this discussion. But let's dive into some questions. Uh, NJ, let's start with you. It's becoming increasingly evident that uh, climate change and the policy responses required to combat climate change are raising various challenges for social justice, human rights, jobs, livelihoods on the continent. Uh, there's a lot to take into consideration here. So what sort of solutions or approaches can um, advocacy groups like yours take to contribute to weeding through all of these, uh, these socioeconomic issues? I think the first thing we have to look at this is I, we believe more in a market-driven approach. I'm a capitalist. I'm very happy being here. If you're socialist, you'll be disappointed. I like making money, and I think we need to engage in a more free market approach on how we approach this. And that comes with what we look at from where we stand as Africa. A free and structured market is, is important, but an enabling environment is even more important at this stage. So that's why we have to drive um, an enabling environment to ensure that you can start addressing these issues and address them with, with businesses. And I think one of the key things we look at, I think we've done with the Chamber, is basically look at and say, how do we encourage right policy making? How do we encourage right rules? How do we look at sometimes if, where governments should not be picking winners and losers? But on a bigger scale, you've got to look at the issues around access to finance. And I really drive this issue a lot. Less than 2% of global renewable investment has gone to Africa. That's an issue that we need to be advocating more and really driving more of that subject. You can't tell a continent to walk away from fossil fuels, then you put less than 2% in um, investment, um, investment in that continent. Rolaki just mentioned about climate um, mitigation funds. I think more adaptation should come. $100 billion that they promised, it has not come for 13 years. If you've not seen that, that's a, that's a bounce check. But lastly, we as Africans have to look at the mirror. Mirrors sometimes are not just to reflect what you see. Mirrors are to correct what you see. We need to start doing it ourselves. We need to start looking at raising capital. We need to engage with Bank of America and find those African, create those African private equity hedge funds and financial institutions to drive this up. But lastly, and I would, I, would, I would say this, I like watching movies sometimes, but Superman is not coming to do this for us. Batman is not coming. Wakanda Forever is a great movie, but the Black Panther is not coming. <laughs> so we would have to really advocate for ourselves and drive this. Ourself. 
Wonderful. And I think, uh, Rolaki, this is a great area for you to jump in because this really is your background, is focusing on financial markets. Could you speak about how we can use financial markets as a way to drive growth? And what does just transition mean for Africa in the financial uh, yeah. market? Well, I mean, the, the most obvious thing is we need to democratize access to finance. One of the really the areas that I've been working on locally and you know I'm part of a women in energy network. I mean really recently looking at how we support startups and technology companies. We know that across Africa for instance the payment platforms and digital banking have been major catalysts for economic empowerment yeah. and growth. And we're now seeing ways in which those platforms themselves can drive financial inclusion. So I'm moving away now from sort of big money focusing on last mile. And I think this is a really important point to make because if we're really going to diversify our energy mix, if we're going to focus on all types of consumers who consume and use energy and we need all types of energy, to do so, then the demand side is going to be absolutely critical. And there's no way you can hope to finance bankable projects that are sustainable if the end users don't have a means or the capacity to pay for it. So I think actually financial markets broadly need to drill down to what happens at the grassroots. That's the first thing. Uh, the second thing is that we need more innovative funding approaches. And we heard Yvonne talk about blended finance. We need to see how the public sector and governments can create more conducive environments to unlock domestic capital markets. I'm a huge fan of domestic capital markets because many of the projects we're talking about that will create long-term sustainable development and jobs require long-term, low-cost, and ideally local currency sources of funding. Um, and it's important to really tap into these alternative asset classes. So I think that's going to be a, a big one. And then the final thing I would really say is how do we actually de-risk these opportunities for investors? I think if you're somebody who's been investing in Africa for quite a long time, you know, you have a good sense of the risk profile. Um, but one of the things we've seen, for instance, with the transition to cleaner forms of energy, um, I do a lot of work in the sort of clean technology space. And one of the things we saw is that many of these technologies had a long tail to profitability. So it really took a long time for them to become profitable and deliver robust returns to investors. So we need more credit enhancements. We need financial access that is inclusive, both from a, from, from a gender and a youth perspective. And I think these are some of the things that would really enhance uh, the attraction of capital uh, into Africa. And then, and then I guess maybe to sort of wrap up is how does, how do global capital flows happen? Uh, one of the things we've seen globally with the sort of repositioning of the global energy value chains is Africa historically has been hugely dependent um, on imported products. So whether it's petroleum products, finished products, now we're seeing a realignment in global capital flows, I think project developers on the continent need to be a bit more creative. If the EIB or the World Bank or the ECB are saying we're no longer funding fossil fuels, uh, we now have local entrepreneurs who are powering their petroleum pump stations with solar energy, who are looking at hybrid projects, who are thinking more through uh, ESG in their projects, who are thinking around gender inclusivity in their projects in order to attract funding. I don't think it's enough for Africa and Africans to say, well, we're just going to use our resources and exploit them 
unsustainably, because that level of pragmatism also needs to be shown on the domestic front. And I think we need to be realistic about the way global financial flows are moving. We also need to be realistic about sometimes the hypocrisy around that. That's just a fact. But it also goes to the fact that there is an inequity in how the power balance works. So if Germany is moving to coal plants and Europe has mostly been powered on gas and we're not funding gas in Africa, we can then just say, okay, well, you know, no, all bets are off the table. We're just going to go ahead and invest and develop gas. We need to develop gas in a sustainable way because apart from domestic sources of funding, we still need foreign investment as well to complement that. So I think those are some of the strategies we need to adopt. And of course, leadership and governance are going to be quite key to unlocking those sources of funding. Mm. Yeah. Well, that's uh, great. And actually, I think, Ruka, this is an interesting um, area for you to jump in because I know that you have a school of sustainable entrepreneurship. So we've spoken about financial obstacles, but there are several other obstacles um, for entrepreneurs scaling up in the sustainability sector. So from, what, from your experience, what sort of issues are entrepreneurs facing in making more sustainable uh, business decisions? Besides the funding aspect, you know, there's, there is funding, but is there also an issue surrounding lack of awareness, resources, labour? Could you speak to that? Of course, and that, that's, uh, you know, it's an excellent question. It's a really important question as well. I think um, in terms of the challenges, you know, and, and, and there are many, I'll just speak to about three or four. You know, firstly, for the entrepreneurs not, you know, knowing how to access um, support to execute their green idea, um, for instance, right? So we, we had an entrepreneur in, in the early days that, just like Yvonne said, Ashaked learned music online, and you know, she had heard about how you could use you know, um, recycled plastic to make pavement, right? So you can use that for car parks or whatever it is, you know, for your home or whatever it is. And um, really wanted to work with this idea, develop prototypes and, you know, and see how, how, how far they could go with it. But you see, there, there are very few maker spaces you know, in, 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 in the country. We have one at Ashesa University, there, there's, I think, um, KNUST have, have a few. But, you know, it was really important for us as, as a business incubator to say, okay, you're a national incubator. There are very few makerspaces that people can you know, test their ideas. So what are you going to do? So we then set up partnerships with a whole range of institutions, public sector institutions, the Council for Scientific and Industrial Research, the Forestry Commission, so that even if an entrepreneur is in WA, you know, far away from Accra, they can have access to um, a lab where, where, where they can work. So not really having access to, even, you know, to further that, um, that, that idea. That's one challenge. But not also knowing about green options. You know, we have, uh, as part of the school, we, we have um, enterprises that we call greening enterprises that are doing really well. But, you know, maybe it's, it's a catering business, maybe it's a fashion business. But um, they're thinking, what are my sustainability options, right? You know, I've heard about all these wonderful big companies talking about how they're going green. What does that mean for me? And, you know, it, and it takes a brave and bold, forward-looking enterprise to even ask that question in the first place, right? So we, we, we have an entrepreneur that um, actually had worked with PwC, worked in transactions, and then worked, went to work with Standard Chartered in, in the UK and Kenya. Uh, now working in catering because you know he loves to cook, right? 
and he's worked with high net worth individuals and you know um, corporations and they were now asking him okay you, you make great food and we love how you set up da, 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 but net zero sustainability what does that mean for you know um, for your catering business so he came to us what can I do help me I don't want to lose business right so we, 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 he was part of our last cohort. So we talked him through to know what some of the green options are. What you doing with your green, um, with your food waste, with your organic waste, for instance, you know. So people not knowing about green options, that's also a challenge. But we hope that with some of the work that you know, many of us are doing in Ghana, not just the CIC, um, around giving you know, the storytelling and advocacy for, for, for a green economy, that we, we, we hope that we're raising awareness about, about green issues. But certification, regulation is also an issue, right? And um, for those um, businesses that are actively working in the green economy, there's a lot more work that needs to be done around issues of policy, incentives, mm -hmm. fiscal incentives, right? Um, I see one of my colleagues from Ghana, an entrepreneur actually, who's speaking later today, you know, nodding. She knows um, and has experienced the difficulties um, that um, businesses have. So those are some of the challenges and the, the opportunities. Climate finance has been difficult to access, but organizations like our, ourselves can provide financing that perhaps maybe roller care later on can, can, can add to and, and help um, and, and enterprises um, to scale. We can also give you strategic visibility. There's an enterprise that was just a, it's an abattoir, and then, you know, again he came to us, what can I do, what can I do? We helped him to turn that waste, right, to make him, um, there's a black, um, where's the rubbish man that's here? We, we, what, is that his name? What's his name, Mr... Here you are. Yeah. Yes. So we, we have. <laughs> is that what, did I get it right? But we have an entrepreneur that actually, you know, we, we supported to turn um, his um, the waste from the abattoir to actually make um, um, feed, animal feed, right? Because they, they go through the process of making maggots and all of that um, for for farmers. Because that's seventy percent of, of of farming costs. I, I understand. So you know. The opportunities um, are also plentiful, but I, you know, being able to actually access them and people knowing that you know, institutions like ours, like Rolai Cares, or, you know, exist to provide them with that support. And I have a follow-up question, actually, because there is quite a strong gender component mm -hmm. in your, uh, in, in your uh, innovation centre. And what we continue to hear is at the heart of just transition for Africa is women do play a big part. Um, in fact, the World uh, Economic Forum found that 60% of women in sub-Saharan Africa work in agriculture, producing 70% of the continent's food. Additionally, a study by UN Women reported that uh, women in sub-Saharan, again, accumulatively spend 40 billion hours a year collecting water and that if these unproductive hours were used elsewhere, then overall society could function in a more productive way. And so it seems that women have a disproportionate burden that they do bear from uh, the, the climate crisis. Same when it comes to access to finance. You know, a lot, a lot of female entrepreneurs really struggle disproportionately mm -hmm. compared to men. And so I will, I will come on to uh, uh, 
the, the two of you in a minute, but I just want to hone in on that. What opportunity is there in the um, Innovation um, and Skills Centre? Um, not just your organisation, but actually others that you know of to ensure that women are at the forefront of planning and implementation when it comes to climate solutions? You know, you cannot talk about entrepreneurship, um, entrepreneurship in Africa, entrepreneurship in Ghana, without also talking about the genderized nature of entrepreneurship. You know, empirical evidence you know, shows that although there are outliers, generally male-led enterprises consistently outperform female-led enterprises. Doesn't mean that female-led enterprises you know, don't have certain skills or they don't have know-how, but there are some gender barriers, right, in the marketplace. There's some gender barriers in the business sector. Some of these are endogenous, some of these are exogenous, right? The, the negative, there's some negative externalities to our sociocultural contexts and infrastructures. Now, these seek, can seep in into a woman's decision-making, generally, but also about her business and mm -hmm. how she runs her business, right? This notion of maybe, for instance, you know, well, I can't, I can't do this, you know, no, I haven't, no woman has ever done this before, right? So I'm not even going to try. Issues of access to finance. There are gender barriers to financing. I mean, we could sit here all day talking about you know, um, some of these issues. And that means that women just have more limited opportunities to actually advance and enter in, first and foremost, or grow within mm -hmm. the green economy. So recognizing this, we have a program that we call the Women Entrepreneurs Transformation Program. Now, women come into the accelerator, incubator accelerator to enhance their business knowledge, their business skills, to know how to better run their businesses, right? And we also, they also get some tutelage around you know, climate change, what it means for business. But the Women Entrepreneurs Transformation Program specifically deals with some of these endogenous and exogenous barriers, right, to, to successes. Um, to, to, to their business success. And it's important that we do this because there's equality and there's equity, right? So just because, you know, and we always make sure that with any cohort, we really want to have equal amounts of men and women, mm. right? Which means that in even, in even acquiring talent, in choosing and searching and selecting enterprises, we're doing a lot of work around storytelling. We're going to, you know, around Ghana to all the regions doing on what we call a national green business roadshows, trying mm. to identify talent and trying to identify you know, female talent because we, mm. we don't want them to miss out on, you know, on, on, on opportunities. So you know, the, the program also supports them around issues of um, commercial acumen, right, so that they, they, they can make the right decisions on, on their business. But really look at also a whole range of issues. You know, many of our entrepreneurs will tell us that my mother has a stroke, and I'm, the, I'm, and I'm the chief carer. But yes, I run this farm. Every day I wake up at 3 a.m. because my workers come in you know, at, at 4 a.m. She may be, her competitor may be a male-led enterprise. Like maybe his wife is a carer for her own mother, for his own mother. But you know, he has his own business, but he just gets up every day at 6 a.m. and then he goes to work, right? So how do we circumvent all of those issues? How do we provide support to women um, to under, to, yeah, literally mm. to circumvent, you know, sociocultural barriers, um, economic barriers, financial barriers. How do you put your best foot forward when Bank of America says they want to have a meeting, right? They want to know the facts and figures. How do you ensure that you can speak to the facts and figures? 
How do you, you know, how do you ensure that even around your sexual industry, you know what the, you know, what this, um, the, 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 the data is, the, the, the stats are, and you know, what it is that is your unique selling point and your value proposition. So really, we, um, we want to make, make sh and ensure that women are not left behind when it comes to the green economy, that, um, you know, that they have the insight, they have the knowledge, the capacity is built to fully take hold of the opportunity that um, climate change offers. Thank you, absolutely. <laughs> And uh, Rolake, I want to bring you in here, uh, this financing component and women. Speak to us from your experience. Are there any interesting trends or patterns that you've noticed when it comes to women trying to access finance on the continent to scale up their, their businesses? And, and what sort of interesting solutions have you seen? Any interesting case studies you can share with us? Oh, wow. Okay. So, um, okay. Well, I think in, in terms of gender and the just transition, it's, it's a broader issue. And there's so many different nuances and layers. It's not just simply women struggle to access finance. It's the risk perception that lenders might place on a woman-owned business. It's the, uh, the potential perceived competencies that mm -hmm. a company that is contracting out services to a woman-owned business that may suffer from. Um, so there are so many nuances. You know, you have things like people asking who's her financial backer. Uh -huh. You know, it's, it's much more layered. Mm -hmm. um, I know it sounds funny, but these are the realities of it. But, uh, you know, I, I don't want us to kind of, you know, maybe overemphasize the mm. issue around gender because broadly across the just energy transitions, there's, there's some broader issues. If you look at clean cooking, women and children are the, the biggest demographic in terms of victims that suffer from these environmental fire hazards around uh, uh, biomass and wood-fueled cooking. Uh, but also broadly, and there's, a, there's some really interesting examples. So we're talking about um, the just transition and for instance, South Africa, has, has been one of, being held up as perhaps a poster child for how the interactions between you know, the, the West around funding the just energy transition in Africa mm -hmm. might work. And one of the things that South Africa has been told to do under a package that involves the World Bank, I think the Global Climate Fund, is to decommission coal plants. Mm -hmm. So it has about 15 coal plants, and it's meant to decommission coal plants. But one of the things that we often miss is when you look at South Africa's history, particularly around mining and coal, you have many communities that have been historically built yeah. around coal mining, yeah. which is men living their families, mm -hmm. going into the hinterland and mining. And here you are, you're coming to decommission the coal plants. And women are the dependents in many of those communities. Now, sounds like a long, long stretch, but I'm just trying to paint a more holistic picture. We actually need policymakers and governments in Africa who understand these nuances. Because as soon as you move from one stage of decarbonization to another, you're creating a new set of challenges. Mm -hmm. And I just gave you the, the example earlier about mineral extraction. We've talked for ages in countries like the DRC, um, where you have copper and cobalt in the Katanga province being extracted. We talked about child labor. Guess what? If you're chasing lithium, you're chasing copper, you're chasing cobalt, for what? Battery minerals, which are going to go into electric vehicles for the energy transition. 
you have to look at the entire value chain. Absolutely. So a just transition is not just simply a black and white issue. It is a very nuanced issue that is going to take years and years of sustained investment, funding, strong leadership and governance to literally handhold Africa through that transition. And as all transitions go, it's going to be a very painful one. And I dare say the marginalized communities and communities on the fringes are the one that probably stand to suffer the most if their needs are not prioritized in that whole conversation. Thank you so much. And NJ, I want to bring you in here. Yes, <laughs> round of applause. <laughs> yes. NJ, I, I want to bring you in here. Um, you know, an interesting uh, component in, in all of this is, uh, is job losses as, as well. And this is a conversation that we are actually having earlier in that, you know, the just transition will have distributional consequences, uh, and particularly when it comes to job losses. Job losses are likely to occur in certain sectors and communities, particularly where there is a high dependence on fossil fuels. And um, also where there is a lack of diversification in the market. And so I know that you frequently advise international oil companies, um, and in doing so, you have helped to create thousands of jobs um, across the energy value chain. So you're a good person to comment on this. How can job losses be prevented um, via this transition? And also importantly, how can, how can new jobs be created in a, in a more sort of uh, diversified way? Well, you produce more gas, you, you, get, you, you prevent job losses. But uh, <laughs> I, 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 do th I do think, though, and Rolake um, and uh, Ruka did, did mention some, I'll get to that bit before, on, uh, on uh, women issues and the transition. Let's be honest, the energy industry has done a horrible job when it comes to, energy, um, to women. It's not even something we need to be proud of, we need to be ashamed. Women are still the last hired and the first fired in our industry. Women issues have just been very, and I, we really hope that when we're talking about a transition, this does not repeat itself, whether it's with the green economy or whatever you see. If it's a replacement of what you've seen in the fossil fuel industry with the green industry, then it's, a, it's, it, then it's going to be really despicable. But when you talk about jobs and that transition, it is those mining towns in Pumalanga, for example, in South Africa. It is in those shanty towns around Luanda. It is those um, oil towns around the Niger Delta, Port Harcourt. And you have to look at those people in the eyes and look at these young men and you say, champ, what's going to happen in the future? It's not a problem with a transition. You still have an amazing opportunity to really see a world bigger than what we're um, where we are. And I see that someone who comes from fossil fuels, and I'm not ashamed of fossil fuels, I'm really proud of fossil fuels because I think it has driven human civilization. It has really created something, but I, we also have to embrace what we're looking at and we're looking at the future and, and start looking and finding those solutions. But it's an amazing opportunity for young people to start saying that, hey, look, we can leapfrog. And I, I, don't, I don't doubt the ability of these young Africans and non-Africans and those that think about the future to be able to leapfrog. We saw it. I grew up in a house, in a house where you had a, 
you know, remember, I don't, I'm older than most of you guys, but they had those cell phones, those, not cell phones, phone systems where you put your hand and you went around, and when it, when, when it rang, the entire neighborhood knows it was ringing. And, but we leapfrog from that into cell phones. And my grandma has two of them working in her farms. So these this, this are possible. This is, humanity has always been, been able to do that. Now the big question is, what can you do to find innovative, creative ways to create jobs, to capture this moment, but also look at the obstacles and the bottlenecks that are in the way. How do we move away? Don't, don't bet against Africa. These are the most resilient people you, found, you can find in the world. We survived COVID without vaccines. Don't you dare tell me that we are not going to get a transition without your financing. Yes. We're slightly low on time, but there is a question that I, I want to squeeze in, and I think it's an important one and actually speaks to your, your point just now. The previous session, we explored the narrative of Africa. I think the narrative of Africa is very important, and that can be applied to different areas, different topics when it comes to the African continent. But the narrative, the just transition, Rolaki, I'm going to come to you here, because I know that you contribute to... Uh, various media platforms on the side, BBC, uh, uh, CNBC. So I want to hear from you. What is the narrative that you're hearing um, across these media platforms when it comes to the just transition? And more importantly, what do you think that we can be doing to enhance that narrative, improve that narrative, and more importantly, secure buy-in mm. from people on the continent so that, you know, as NJ has rightly said, people can think, actually, I have an innovative solution to these problems and change starts with me as opposed to depending on an outside source. Yeah, that's a really interesting one. I, I actually think, you know, Yvonne kind of touched on that. Mm -hmm. You know, we've gone from the dark continent to Africa rising and now we're on African solutions to African problems, right? But I actually see that that narrative has to be African solutions to global problems. Yes. That is the narrative. We'd really love to push, and because I'm big on representation, it's really more about having these sorts of conversations, being an African professional, being out there and, and having that conversation. And it's really interesting, you know, some of the subtleties around the climate activism that has been going on. Because for those of us in Africa, working in Africa and living there daily, sometimes it actually really feels like a different world. I'll be honest. Um, you know, I attended International Energy Week last week, and I, I think the week before, and of course there were these climate activists outside, and it just seemed like a totally different reality to the, the realities of actually living and working in Africa. Mm. You know, you have a small business that has to use petrol and diesel generators because there's no grid access. And, you know, so that transition, the, the whole, yes, that contributes to emissions, mm. but I think Africans are smart. We are sophisticated, but you ask the average African in the village to make that connection between your climate activism in Channel Sheikh. And there's just a huge disconnect. And that's the reality. What we need to be focused on is creating homegrown solutions that work. And we're seeing it in key sectors. Three of the biggest unicorns are in fintech in Africa. And guess what? Fintech is becoming a really important ally for the clean tech industry. 
And those are the types of collaborations that we need to be talking about. That is a narrative we need to be painting. Uh, we have a great, fantastic demographic story, which is a youth demographic. And so we can export these solutions to the world. But guess what that demographic also allows us to do? Again, going back to finance. If you look at our pension fund assets, we have a very low dependency ratio, which means many of those assets will be around for decades to come. So this is a fantastic narrative. Let's find a way to harness those local financial resources and make it work for infrastructure development and long-term sustainable development in Africa. That's a story I need to be painting on the global stage. I want to be putting African business case studies in business schools around the world so that we're no longer talking about how Malaysia used to be and Nigeria used to be at par, but we're actually taking a story from my country, Nigeria, and it's serving as a model and a reference point for how economies can grow around the world. And it's starting at a micro level. It just needs to happen at a critical mass. That's a narrative I think we should be painting. It's no longer just about African solutions or African problems or African solutions for the world. Yeah, yes. excellent. We're going to have to stop there. Um, we will now transition into questions, Q&As. So um, I will be taking a couple of questions from the audience. I'll take about three questions at once. Please keep your questions concise. Um, please specify who your question is to. Um, I'm looking for hands now. Okay, uh, we'll take the gentleman at the back, uh, the lady here in the front with a grey sweater, and the gentleman in front here. Uh, we'll start with you, sir. Uh, hello, my name is Aaron. Um, so, my question is, can you hear me? Is it my yeah, you're good. Um, so my question is, are you aware of any support at a regional level for innovations in climate? Um, yeah, um, energy, sorry. Please so, specify, who's your question to? Maybe it's more relevant to the lady from the Ghana uh, Innovation Centre. Are you, so if I mentioned that she noticed that East Africa was more coordinated in their uh, responses to the challenges, is there anything at the regional level in terms of, like, say, ECOWAS and the regional blocks? Are you aware of any coordination for innovations or any support for innovations? Do you want to put the questions first or do I answer him? Oh, yeah, you, you can yeah. go ahead and answer Okay, so in terms of maybe um, institutions like um, ECOWAS and sort of like government or bilateral, multilateral institutions, what they are doing, I'm less aware of at a regional level. But I can speak to our network of CICs that are all over Africa. There's a CIC in Nigeria, there's a CIC in Kenya, there's a CIC obviously in Ghana, there's one in South Africa, um, I think the one in, in Ethiopia has closed. What we try to do is to work you know, closely together, right, and learn lessons, recognizing that you can't cut and paste from East Africa. East Africa may be doing better in so many ways. I don't know from what you know, West Africa is doing, but our context is different, right? Um, uh, the, the, the sexual rigidities are, are, are very different. So where we can learn lessons from, you know, from each other, we, we, we do, and, um, and, and, and when we can you know, um, learn from their mistakes, you know, we, we, we also do. But in terms of whether what regional um, economic blocks are doing, um, those 
unfortunately tend to be a little bit bureaucratic. And I think entrepreneurs are, you know, they want to move quickly, they, they, they need to be, you know, to work fast. So, um, and that's really what you know, we, we try and, and support them with. So I don't know whether I've helped, but um, in the private sector, a lot is happening. But with the regional blocks, I don't know. Okay, so just to give you some context. So yeah. I have a social enterprise. Yeah. It's called the Community Revolution. And we've conducted a bit of research. We've done a few feasibility studies into renewable energy projects in Africa. Mm -hmm. So we're just wrapping up one in Ghana. We do to start one in Kenya in April, a 12-month feasibility study. So how would my organization benefit from your work? Can we talk later about that? Can I yeah. meet you one-on-one? -on -one? Yeah. Yes. No problem. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay, thank you. Over to the lady in the front here. Hi, um, thank you for sharing so many insights today. My name is Kate, um, and at the outset I'd say I don't want to sound pessimistic. But as someone who's perhaps interested in Africa but isn't an African herself, um, I've noticed that there is traction around um, dialogue about Africa in many areas like culture, reparations, um, economic, um, and f economic and financial issues. Um, but so often kind of the, like this, the ownership and structure of these conversations like still don't, like they don't lie in African hands. And I mean, that for me, that's troubling because I admire um, NJ your faith in capitalism. But at least, like, from what I know of, like, you know, predominantly, like, you know, billionaires who are black, you know, are primarily entertainers, and they constitute a very small pro proportion of, you know, like global like financial capital in general. Like, ownership is to, like some, somehow like fallen behind. And I guess my question is, what are what are some ways that kind of um, like, you know, when, when as, as this conversation around finance is moving forward, that those other conversations can also move forward? Or perhaps, um, are there ways that finance can be moved forward in, in more constructive ways than those other conversations because they've stalled for so long? Um, I think Orlaki is actually smarter to answer about <laughs> that kind of stuff. But I, I, I tell you this, there's nothing wrong about making money. And I, think, and I think black folks have sometimes looked like we are apologizing for wanting to be rich. We are apologizing for wanting to make money. I don't understand someone who doesn't like money. I think there's something wrong with you. If you, if you but, but I also think, though, we have been so dependent. Our entire civilization has on this really, really messed up thing about aid that we have to wait for somebody to give us reparations, to give us this, and whatever we do, let's look for donors. Whatever plan or anything we have, let's find someone to donate to us, and then we are beholden to them, and we cannot stand up and speak up or create our own path or channel something. So our heroes have become the football players or the, or the artists, like what you say, and not those young men from this university and many others around that are getting up at 5 a.m. in the morning and being and wanting to see how they can create capital, build wealth, and really create something that works. And you know what? If a, if a young European or a Western boy goes to Africa and does a great big renewable energy project, he's a genius, he's smart. If a black guy or black woman does it, they slick or they crook. 
And we need to turn, talk about that narrative, we need to turn it around and we need to believe in the faith of capitalism and free market, limited government, individual liberties. It's going to be what we do to rechange and shape the future and capital is part of it. $2.4 trillion in, in the, in, across the African economy. And sometimes that young man is talking about going to Kenya to, to do a project and he would have to go to Europe or America or other way to raise 20 or 30 million dollars. That enabling environment has to be created by us to encourage these people so that young man can find money and grow up Africa. I think that answers your question very well. <laughs> Okay, final question. Yeah, final one. Uh, thank you very much for the talk. It's very interesting. Uh, I guess my question goes to uh, Rolake and Angie. Uh, in the capitalistic world where we are trying to make money, which is great, I totally agree with that. But again, uh, on the other side, uh, I think Ms. Rolake uh, talked about the just transition, looking at the value chain and all that kind of thing. I'm coming into this because I think it's particularly uh, my interest and I want to learn more from people who are really working on the ground and that. So I guess my question is, um, uh, how do just transition in the energy sector looks like when it comes to EV development? So uh, like electric vehicle development uh, in, in that sense. <laughs> and more specifically in the capitalistic world, we want to make money, but also we want to be just in the way we are developing EVs. How do we bring these two concepts together, make money, be just in the energy transition. And the last question is probably for, for you. When is, uh, you mentioned something about policy, which is a very big issue. And I do agree with that, but I still, um, there is this interconnectedness about you know, policies. We are trying to solve problems, which are creating more problems. How do we blend all this together to find risks and trade-offs in the development of these policies so that we can go faster? And what's the timing? That's the main question. Yeah. I'll have a, a 15 second answer to you and Rulaki can elaborate on that. I just think build a supply chain in Africa. That's a just transition. If, when you talk about EVs, you talk about all processing of mineral storage, batteries, why should we have to take that and send abroad when you can build the entire dam supply chain in Africa, have all these, have great more jobs, and create opportunities and drive that up. Put up that financing and do it in Africa and you would see that's the path towards a just transition for EVs, for renewables and everything and not just saying that we are going to repeat what we've done in Guinea Conakry with bauxite and where $2 is left and $600 is made out. If you're really interested about a just energy transition, any transition, let's stop. Let's look at that mirror which I talked about in the beginning and let's build that supply chain across the continent. But also, everybody in this room, we need to hold these politicians, these gangsters, to account <laughs> in Africa so that they can implement this Intra-Africa Free Trade Act. It's really going to help. the works. <laughs> so I agree with um, NJ to a large extent. Um, I think value creation is key. But I, I've seen this narrative time and time again in EVs create value creation. But we also have to wise. Africa is 54 countries, right? Even within Nigeria, we have 36 states and the federal capital territory. Some would argue that not all those states are economically viable. 
what do we have a competitive advantage in creating locally? One of the things that the renewable energy industry is doing now in terms of advocacy for government is to bring in component parts for solar panels so that we can assemble them. I don't know that Nigeria, for instance, will have a competitive advantage in creating solar equipment end to end. So we also need to be sensible mm -hmm. and look at how we mm -hmm. phase our development through the value chain, right? That's number one. And number two is, let's look at what a typical African city requires today. Is it Nairobi or Lagos? If we put EVs on the road, how are we gonna power the EVs, right? Now, I'm not saying EVs are not a great thing, but I'm just saying that we need to take a more nuanced approach. And then the third thing, the third thing I would say is let's flip it on the supply side. India, by 2030, is going to be phasing out fossil fuel vehicles, according to the government. Now, India historically has been one of the biggest export markets for African oil and gas, right? Sustainability, in my mind, is also African governments thinking about how they mitigate that change in global market dynamics. Qatar has just signed a 27-year LNG contract with China, which I think was a missed opportunity for African gas producers. The world is evolving so fast that even we need to look at what is happening in the global value chain beyond Africa because it's going to impact our ability to harness our resources. So we need to look at it from a much more strategic approach. That would be my response, my response to that. Yeah. All right, we are out of time. I know there was another component to your question, which was sustainable business versus profit. Does there have to be a trade-off? You know, and how do you secure buy-in from entrepreneurs who want to make profit? That is the, the key objective, but actually uh, channeling that in a <laughs> more sustainable way. Just make money and don't do the There's a lot of money to be made in, in, in the green economy. Yeah. The enterprises that we support, that many people who are working in the green economy, you know, are making strong revenues. They're creating jobs. Even in our incubation, just, just last year, the first nine months of last year, you know, 18 enterprises, right? Created 627 jobs, right? It's just small and small and growing businesses. Saved carbon emissions for 99,000, what 99,000 Ghanaians emit in, in the, per annum. There, 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 there's a lot of viability in, in the green economy. There's no trade-off. It's, 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 it's the future of business. In fact, not even the future. Today's business is a green business. So we need to just get that, you know, um, that notion that there is a trade-off mm -hmm. away. There is no trade-off. What we need is the climate financing so that we can scale up um, in, in, in investments in the green economy. Yeah. I think that's a perfect place to end. Thank you all for being with us today. Can we have a round of applause?